Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Deputy Press Secretary to Vice President Kamala Harris, Sabrina Singh. In this episode, Sabrina speaks about the heightened stakes of White House communications, the delicate balance between policy precision and individual authenticity in political speech, and how the Harris and Biden press teams collaborate as a unified administration. Sabrina also describes her past, growing up in Los Angeles and attending Harvard Westlake and USC, as well as her future as she prepares for a new role at the Pentagon as Director of Integrated Campaigns for the Department of Defense. Lastly, while we avoid discussing the policies of the Biden-Harris administration, Sabrina speaks about how meaningful it is, particularly as an Indian-American woman, for her to work for the first woman and first Indian-American to serve as vice president. As Sabrina notes, Kamala Harris, quote, looks like me, end quote. Sabrina Singh on the power of words and of representation in the White House. This is The Supporting Cast. Sabrina Singh, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for being with us. And I know you are in Washington, D.C. right now, and we tried this a couple of days ago, but because you were at the executive office building <laughs> in D.C., uh, the software that we use for this podcast wouldn't allow us to do it because there are conflicts going on in the world and there are probably special controls around the server in that building that prevented us from speaking. So I'm glad you were able to make the time uh, a couple of days later. Well, thank you for being so flexible with me. Yes, unfortunately, the executive office building did not allow us to have this conversation. So I'm glad we were able to reschedule and do it today. Absolutely. Me too. So the first question, though, I, I have is about you. And so we are, hopefully, we feel like nearing the end of this pandemic, there's maybe a variant somewhere in Europe that people are starting to get worried about, but it does feel like things are beginning to open up and the masks are coming off. I guess the first question I have is about you personally, Sabrina. How are you doing during this unique time in history? You know, I'm very fortunate. I'm doing well. My family's doing well. My husband and I both did get COVID over the December 2021 holidays into the new year. But I think we are feeling very hopeful about the direction that hopefully COVID is taking. We're seeing less hospitalizations, um, less deaths. And so I'm good. You know, it's also DC, it is springtime. And so the weather's getting warmer, people are going outside. The cherry blossoms. The cherry <laughs> blossoms are everywhere. And um, so it's allergy season as well. <laughs> but I feel very fortunate to be, you know, in good health and in good spirits here as we have this conversation. Glad to hear it. So the first question I have, you are uh, currently, although I know you are departing soon, we'll get there shortly, you are currently the Deputy Press Secretary for Vice President Kamala Harris. And I guess the first question I have is probably top of mind for most people in general, it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And my question around being a press secretary, a Deputy Press Secretary for the Vice President is sort of the heightened stakes of communication right now. If the vice president says something, whether it's off the cuff or something that's off script, we had something happen a number of weeks ago where President Biden said 
that Vladimir Putin, quote, cannot remain in power, end quote. And people were curious, is that a statement of opinion? Is that a statement of policy? And I think President Biden said it was a statement of opinion. But those types of things, when the stakes are that high, when nuclear war is potentially out there, what changes in terms of the internal processes for the press or the press office for the vice president? I think that's a great question. The one thing about working in the White House is that the stakes are always so high, um, right. no matter what the topic is, whether it is Russia invading Ukraine, whether it is the events that unfolded over the summer in Afghanistan, or if it's COVID and how we're going to reopen schools and how we're going to talk to teachers and parents about how to keep our kids safe. The stakes are always so high. And so it is so hard sometimes to separate the personal feelings that you have from seeing the images of what is happening in Ukraine. And I think the president had an extremely successful visit to Poland and um, meeting with our troops. And the vice president was there, I think, about two weeks before his visit. And you know, when you're communicating, especially on the world stage, you have to be very clear and remember that you're not just speaking to the American people, you're also speaking to our allies abroad. And so whenever we are talking about Russia, Ukraine, these very sensitive events, it is important that we remain clear uh, when it comes to our messaging and that we are really united as a White House when it comes to communicating. And so there was a lot of, for the vice president, a lot of prep with her national security team before the trip. Uh, I know the vice president also was with the president, getting briefed with his national security team by the secretary of defense, by the secretary of state, both of whom traveled with the president to Poland and to meet with our, our NATO allies abroad. I think it's always it is an art for someone at the president and vice president president's level. They always have to project, I think, a tremendous amount of confidence from what they know and, and how to relay that to the American people. I think, you know, these are such sensitive issues, issues that we cannot always disclose our methods and our intelligence sources. But we also, when we're communicating, it's about communicating an allied front to our friends and neighbors across the world. And then also communicating a direct message to Vladimir Putin, who also listens to what the president and right. vice president have to say. And we have to remember that he is an audience of one that has been incredibly isolated. And so when the president speaks, I think it's without a doubt that Vladimir Putin hears what he has to say. Is that part of the challenge in a, in a press office for the vice president or the president is this, you want to try to communicate authenticity yet the stakes are so high and the language people use has to be so precise that if you're not kind of speaking from the heart, it can come off as insincere or distant or kind of hard to reach for the average person watching. Yet if you speak too close to the heart and you're kind of expressing your own personal opinion and not the opinion of the administration and the opinion that someone like the Department of Defense wants you to communicate, you get into trouble there. Is it sort of hard to hit that middle ground? You know, I think why politicians, elected leaders, elected officials from the school board all the way to the Oval Office, people like that usually, for the most part, get elected because 
they show both. They show mm. the skill and the the determination and also the delicate balance that you have to walk when it comes to projecting your message, but they also connect personally. And I and yeah. just, you know, to give an example, the president in particular has gone through so much hardship in his life, losing his wife and one of his children in a car accident early on. Stands a level Not to mention grief. another son later right. in his life as later well. Later in his life, correct. You know, he understands a level of grief. It's very deep. And I think he connects with the American people because he also understands that. He also comes from Scranton, middle class roots. And so when you are an elected official and you can kind of weave in the personal with also your what you're projecting to the people when you speak, I think it actually does weave in the authenticity of who you are. It's sometimes hard to separate the emotions from where you are, where you see, you know, children dying on the battlefield, where you see injured coming off the battlefield, fighting with the tools that they have in their own homes. And they're not, you know, necessarily trained military, but they're fighting to keep their homes and their country protected. And sometimes the president was speaking from his heart in that moment. So I think it's, I think it is both. And I think someone that's effective can do both well, be authentic in the way of communicating their personal, you know, what's in their heart, but also having a a strong message, being able to relay that to the American people is so, so important. Well, you mentioned President Biden, and I'm curious, you know, you're in communication for the vice president. Yeah. And these are different people, Vice President Harris and President Biden, but they're part of the same administration. Uh, They may have different opinions on on specific issues, but their values have to be somewhat aligned because they're part of the same administration. How does that work from kind of a press and a communication standpoint? Kind of what's the collaboration like between the Harris and the Biden communication teams? I will say, despite what you might read or hear, it's actually pretty collaborative, pretty cohesive. The president's team, our vice president's team, what we call OVP, the Office of the Vice President, mm-hmm. we are pretty much in line when it comes to our communications, our messaging, and our events. The vice president is there, of course, to help amplify what this administration is doing day to day and the decisions that she and the president are making every day. I think something that is important and part of the reason why she was chosen to join the ticket is she brings a different perspective, a different worldview than the president. She is a black and South Asian woman, the first woman we've had as vice president ever. She is going to bring a unique perspective to whatever table she is at with the president. And so when she does, I think people should know that for so long, we haven't had a woman, well, we've never had a woman in that in that position before. And now that we have someone in that position at the table representing, you know, almost half the population, that's important. And so our teams have to work pretty seamlessly together. And we are in constant communication and coordination when it comes to everything from putting out a statement to working a story with a reporter to coordinating an event that both principals are going to attend or, you know, it's just one or the other, we are each other's support team. And so let's go, you mentioned kind of the historic nature of Vice President Harris's position, being the first woman, first black woman, the first South Asian woman to hold this office. I'm curious, can you speak about what has inspired you specifically about working with her? And I I guess it'd be best to maybe stay away from the specific policies (laughs) <laughs> of of the vice president, although that may be tough, but maybe more to the kind of the personal qualities that have inspired you. 
Well, I, I, you, you know, you kind of said it there. I was inspired by her. Just she looks like me. She yeah. is someone that is there in the room that looks like me. That has maybe we don't have the same life experiences, but I think she understands what so many probably women of color, women face around this country, around the world, obstacles that we face, and so. What drew me to working for her was the fact that this is someone that is going to be our representation in the room. And I truly identify with her story in terms of her parents immigrated from their respective countries to the U.S. to find a better life, to provide for a better life for their family and for their children. And she grew up, I think, in a very joyous household. Some of those life experiences that she had, I really identified with. And so for me, Working for her, and especially I started working for her after her presidential campaign ended. Um, I actually started working for her right before we went into a complete lockdown around the world. Wow. Uh, when COVID first hit in March 2020, I was just inspired by her. And I think, you know, especially when I started coming on board, we were wrapping out the impeachment trial of Donald Trump in the Senate. And I thought she occupied such an incredible space within the Senate. No one could predict sort of the career path that she would have, that I would have. But I knew that I wanted to work for someone that looked like me and that represented, you know, that was a woman. And so that was very important for me in my next role after I um, had ended a campaign that I was just working on. I sort of asked you the inspiring question. I want to ask you more of the kind of the functional or, or logistical one now. How do you... Mm -hmm internally make sure that each piece has that standard of accuracy? Do you use, this is a silly question, do you use Google Docs? Do you pass the letter around oh, to, be, I wish. <laughs> to be vetted by seven or eight people? Uh, you know, we send out materials on behalf of Harvard-Westlake, and it's very important in our office to make sure everything is absolutely perfect. It's a value of Harvard-Westlake communications, but I can't even imagine what that is like when it's the vice president. Kind of, how do you proof things like that? Google Docs would make everything easier. <laughs> um, I wish we used Google Docs. Yeah. For so many reasons, all of which are security related. Kind of, no, no, just long no. and complicated. But okay. essentially, there is a for for your listeners' awareness, there sure. is something called the Presidential Records Act, what we call the PRA, that preserves all communications for every administration. That, you know, one day when they are released in however many years, we have to preserve our records. Google Docs, <laughs> because it's a doc that can be a living doc that can be edited and changed and, you know, reworked, doesn't preserve changes. Um, so you mm. can have an original, but as you keep changing it, it will keep changing. So we have to start with a doc. You send it around on email. People save that doc send it back. It's it's um it's a little archaic, but it is for a good cause. So to go back to your question, we don't always get it right because we're all human and sometimes we are running on no sleep, no more coffee is left. But we have a team that and it'll be myself or someone else will sometimes take an initial draft of a press release or a statement and we usually send it around to our larger team that includes you know, our policy team, our research team, who vets the content of the statement. And then once we get final approval, we will send that out. It's not always the most efficient process. It's not always a perfect process. I think we've certainly gotten things wrong before. When we do get it wrong, we certainly own up to it and we will, you know, send out a correction. 
It's so interesting that the first draft of something mm -hmm. also has to be archived. You know, it's like yep. Abraham Lincoln saying 87 years, you know, and then the, the next draft, well, four score and seven years ago actually sounds better than 87, doesn't it? And it would be, it would be like <laughs> Abraham's original, you know, 87 years draft being there for history to, to see. That's right. No, it is. Um, one day I'll have to, someone will go back through our, our documents and they will find the original versions of speeches <laughs> right. and talking points and they will see how it evolved and where we got yeah. um, to this point. And it's, it, it's an interesting, I think, exercise for someone to do. Right, I bet. Before we go to kind of your, your next turn, because I know you're moving to a new position soon, yeah. what have you loved about working for the vice president in the White House in that way? Uh, that is a great question. There have been so many things that I have truly enjoyed. I think something that is so unforgettable is when we've traveled abroad and just seen how people, countries welcome her and welcome the United States. You know, it's really an honor to be part of her motorcade as we go down the streets, whether it's in Mexico, uh, in Mexico City or in Paris. People lined up and were waving U.S. flags or were just cheering and clapping. And I don't even know how long some of them were standing out there for. But I remember in Mexico, we landed at, I mean, it must have been, I think, after midnight. And people were just so excited to see her, just like catch a glimpse of her, yeah. you know, and, and, and from the car. And it's really unforgettable seeing how the vice president was received, seeing how a woman was received on that stage. It's just pretty powerful. And then also, you know, seeing her do bilateral meetings, whether it's with Prime Minister Modi of India mm -hmm. or Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, the amount of gratitude these leaders have for just being welcomed and, you know, having a working relationship and seeing her engage on that level, I think is something that I will always take with me. So that, that is something that definitely comes to mind. I also think just whenever we interacted with children, kids in schools, whether it be elementary to high school, the vice president is always received with like such awe. I think she's incredibly inspiring to the younger generation and to sort of see that, to be able to document it, whether it be by pictures or, you know, her speaking to a class, that's something that will always stay with me of just like the impacts a leader can have on a younger generation that, you know, who knows, you could have walked into a classroom for five minutes and that will inspire maybe one of those kids to run for office one day. I think that was just pretty, pretty meaningful for me. But you're moving on to a new role I in am. the Department of Defense. Can you at least briefly speak about kind of uh, what you'll be doing next? So I, yes. So after um, I've been with the vice president for two years now, I started with her as then senator and worked with her through the the campaign as as vice presidential candidate, then vice president elect, and then vice president. I've always wanted to get experience in the national security world. I've always wanted to take a deeper dive into foreign policy, and I've always truly wanted to work with the Pentagon. Hmm. And so, you know, an opportunity presented itself. I will be the new director of integrated campaigns, which is a new position that, that has been created in the Pentagon. It's in the press office. Hmm. In terms of what I'm going to be doing, you know, I think I will be finding out more once I start, but I think it's going to be a combination of some proactive working with reporters domestically, engaging with them on proactive pieces we can put out about the good things that the Pentagon is doing. And there are a lot of good things yeah. 
that people don't know that DOD does on a day-to-day basis. Humanitarian efforts and so forth. Humanitarian efforts, exactly. And then, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a crisis every now and then. (laughs) I I would um, imagine. That we'll have to (laughs) deal with. So some of that. Well, thanks, Brina. Now I I would love to get to you and your upbringing. You obviously grew up in LA and and attended Harvard-Westlake. But I first want to mention you referenced that Vice President Harris's parents were immigrants that moved to this country. I wonder if you could first, before talking about kind of your upbringing, talk a little bit about your parents and, and your family history. Sure. My parents immigrated from India back in the, I want to say the 80s. They grew up in India. Um, actually, I, I should correct that. My dad was actually, his father and mother were in New York at the time. So my dad was actually born in New York and then moved back to India when he was about probably I think four, maybe three, um, with my dad's brother. But then he grew up in India in New Delhi. And my mom grew up in Calcutta, moved to Delhi when she was, I think, about to start, I guess what we would consider as middle school. And um, my parents met in Delhi, got married, decided to take a uh, their honeymoon, I think was part of Europe and then some of the US. And I think they went to New York and LA. And my dad had actually gotten into, I think, UCLA business school at the time. And they just loved Los Angeles. I mean, what's not to love? The weather, everything. I I mean, I'm obviously biased. Hmm. Um, so they decided to stay. And so they've been there ever since the 1980s. And I think there was a time where they were thinking about moving back home to Delhi. And then turns out home is actually L.A. <laughs> And they just attended an event the other night, and they're still actively involved with Harvard-Westlake, and your your mother was a trustee for a long time, and right. so active kind of members of the life of the school to this day. I'm curious, though, first, maybe if you could talk a bit about your Harvard-Westlake experience, and then whether there were any teachers in particular that inspired you during that time. Yeah. I Well, I, you know, I had a great experience at Harvard-Westlake. The school, I thought, was a great experience, both middle school and high school. Um, I felt one of these places that I think really prepared me for not just college. Like, I think it just prepared me for life and sort of less of in the academic way, but more in the, like, having confidence mm. in, like, what I'm doing, what I'm saying. It was an incredible experience. And so, for me, probably one of the best things to come out of my experience there is the friends that I made. And I'm still in touch with some of my high school friends. And it's so great whenever I go back to LA, it's always great to catch up. And even if we don't talk all the time, you know, you can kind of pick up from just like the shared experience of like LA, Harvard bus, like all of that. But in terms of favorite teachers, I will never forget Mr. Pavich, my seventh grade I think eighth grade math teacher. Yeah, sure. He was one of the best. He actually, I think math was like my best subject in school. Now looking back, and Mr. Pavich was just so fun. He was like, you know, he was like the cool, cool teacher. Yeah. I think he actually made math very enjoyable. Whereas, like, I don't think it's the most fun subject, but it was always a subject that I thought he made really interesting. So Mr. Pavich was one, and then definitely Ms. Dable, Miss Jane Dable, who was my history teacher, eighth grade, I believe, because I think it was world history that she taught. And, you know, I never really liked history until I took her class. I didn't think I was very good at it. You know, I thought it was all about memorization and just sort of regurgitating what you read just like back 
on a piece of paper for every test. And Ms. Dable just made history so interesting. What she just taught me was that there was so much to learn out there. And she also was like, she had a very dry wit and sense of humor. So I always loved that. And so she was just, I think, really inspiring. I mean, when I went to college, I actually considered majoring in history, but she was just someone that inspired me to, I think, just like think bigger. Yeah. And also, I mean, she had an incredible story. I remember her telling us, she's like, she said, I've held every job you could ever imagine, whether it's from janitor to being, you know, professor at a, at a school. And she was just so grounded in who she was and is. And she was just like real, very inspiring. And, you know, like you're so young in eighth grade and like so impressionable. And like, I was just so impressed that like, you know, someone that didn't have all the opportunities that I had growing up was just so inspiring to me. And, you know, she came to my college graduation and I was just, yeah, I just really was inspired by her. I I really enjoyed learning from her. And then after Harvard Westlake, you went to USC and you, uh, I know there were a couple of professors there that were also highly influential to you. And and eventually you, I think, going into kind of public service and communications. Yes. When I got to USC, I did not know what I was going to major in. I thought, for a little bit, I was like, I'm going to major in anthropology. And then my mom was like, what are you going to do with that? Which like to say, you should totally major in anthropology. It's a great degree. And I have a minor in it. But I was like, I don't know, like, what would that allow me to do? And then I ended up taking when I was a freshman, I ended up taking a class called Peace and Conflict Studies. And it was part of the under the International Relations School. And it was taught by my professor, Professor Becker. And he was this great lecturer. And some people don't necessarily like that. I I loved it. He just put together such an interesting course for us. Like he made us read a book written by a child soldier from Sierra Leone. He, you know, had us analyze different case studies on Rwanda and Serbia and Armenia. And he was just a very inspiring teacher and professor in that like, you know, similar to Miss Dable, he kind of just like widened my view of the world of what I thought was out there and like challenged my own worldview mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. So he was fantastic. And then later on, I think in my junior year, I started, you know, LA, the film industry. I was like, oh, maybe I should like also try majoring in film, which I didn't. But I took a a class taught by Professor Todd Boyd or or Dr. Todd Boyd. And he was a film studies professor in the film school and his classes were always, they, they touched on music and film and he started every class one. He was always late to class, but he started every class with just blasting music that he was going to talk about for that day. So it could be like Jay-Z playing when you came into class or it could be Marvin Gaye, but he he also was a lecturer and just had this great way of analyzing film. So he made us watch everything from, he sort of took apart The Godfather and Scarface and how different tenets of those movies are incorporated into music and into the arts. And it was just, his class is great. And if anyone is in LA and you can ever take a, if you can ever audit one of his classes, I highly recommend it. I actually wrote, in my last year, because I loved his classes and I wanted to do some like a, a special 
a thesis with him. And so I wrote a paper on analyzing season one of The Wire. Uh And it was just, he was just so, so great. So like wonderful and like really was just really guided me throughout the entire process. So highly recommend taking a class with him if you can. Well, all of those sound so relevant to kind of who you are and who you've become, particularly the Becker course, Peace and Conflict. Mm -hmm. I mean, now not only with what's going on in Ukraine, but the work you're doing for the DOD in the future, right, is the whole ideas of our Defense Department, ideally, is to to bring more more peace and less conflict to the world. Yes, exactly. That's that's right. Soft power <laughs> right, um, right. Is, is, is very important as well as hard power. That's right. Also with Harvard-Westlake, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this. You graduated in 2005. In 2009, Kamala Harris was the Black History Month speaker at Harvard West. I did West not Center. know that. Yes. Oh, wow. Um, I did not know that. So yeah. she was attorney general at the time. She was actually was running. This is good for people listening running. as well to yeah. know. She was running for California attorney general. She was the San Francisco district attorney at the time. And I was involved in some of this strangely. I'm not African-American <laughs> in terms of coordinating a Black History Month speaker, but I was working with our African-American alumni uh, network. And there were several alums that said, you should really think about this woman, Kamala Harris. And I got connected with with Mina Harris, uh, uh, the vice president's niece, who I'm still close with. And she married a a good college friend of mine. And so anyways, all these connections. And she spoke uh, way back then. And little did we all know that 11 years later, uh, she'd be the vice president of the United States. I had no idea. That's that's great to hear. I bet she was a fantastic speaker as well. And she was running at that time. So you really got a glimpse at the future with her coming to speak at the school. That's that's great. So then kind of following college, you, you went into politics, working for various politicians, as I understand it. I wonder, and we don't need to go kind of through the entire resume and all the different stops, but I'm wondering if there's maybe one or two people you met along the way either politicians you work for or other folks within the political world who may have been inspiring to you or mentored you during that time? Oh, definitely. I worked at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee during the 2012 cycle. So that's the DCCC uh, for short. Mm -hmm. That is the arm of the Democratic Party that focuses on House races. And I worked there during the 2012 cycle and I started as a press assistant. I was had never done press. I got sort of into the press world in my in my previous job where I was a staff assistant, helped sort of draft some press releases. But at the D trip, I was the press assistant starting out, and my direct boss was the communications director at the time. And her deputy was so her name was Jen Kreider. Her deputy's name was Jesse Ferguson, and. I would say in terms of impact and mentorship, Mm -hmm. I learned the most about communications and press through Kreider and Jesse. I literally shared an office with them about a very small office that really Mm -hmm. should only fit two people, but fit four in there. You know, they just taught me how to talk to reporters, how to work stories, how to, you know, I didn't know what off the record, on the record meant. I didn't know what going on background meant. I didn't know what sourcing was. And particularly, I think Jesse really took me under his wing and let me draft things for him, let me sit in on reporter conversations with him. He really, you know, also taught me how to be confident in when you're talking to a reporter and you don't know the answer, 
don't lie, just right. say you will get back to them. Right. Um, so that those were two folks that, you know, had a big impact on my career. And then the second person that I would, well, I guess third, the person that I think has and, and continues to be an incredible inspiration to me is Senator Cory Booker, mm. who I worked for. Um, I was his national press secretary during his presidential campaign in 2020. And he just has exceptional grace and kindness instilled in him. And he brings that to his job every day. He truly embodies to me, someone that is just so kind and wants to treat others with kindness, even if they are not kind to him. And that's an incredible quality that I think you don't see all the time in a politician or in an elected official. And he really is just an incredible inspiration to me still. And so I have to say that's someone that really stands out, will always stand out in my in my career. Yeah, it's funny. And for the 2020 election, my wife and I were invited at, at different times, different events in Los Angeles yeah. and got to shake hands with different politicians. And I agree with you without uh, kind of going into specific policy or anything like that, because that's not mm-hmm. what this podcast does. Cory Booker stood out with his authenticity, I would say, of all of those people. You know, he, he can get so sentimental. We saw during the mm-hmm. Supreme Court nomination hearing where he you know started to get emotional and people can kind of think oh that's a little overboard but that really does feel authentic to who he is actually completely he is he is that and i can i bet you anything i was not obviously not was not working for him at the time i bet you anything his staff wrote talking points for what he was going to say and that was a complete riff that was a complete riff that he did and that's just him. Yeah. That's really him. He is just so, such a kind person. And every time I see him, interact with him, he treats me the same as he did on day one when I met him to to today. And I think that says a lot. And that goes back to what we spoke at the beginning about going off script and sort of the authenticity right. of going off script sometimes, as long as it doesn't create a foreign policy right. <laughs> conundrum <laughs> of some kind. Um, right. All right. Well, as part of this podcast, um, there are three standard questions. They relate to Los Angeles, where you grew up and attended Harvard Westlake. We uh, are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So the first question is, what is Sabrina Singh's favorite movie? Good movie or bad movie? (laughs) Depends. Just favorite. If if there's sort of the guilty pleasure movie, that's okay, too. Okay. I guess my favorite movie that I can watch at any time, yeah. any day, is Jaws. I love Jaws. I've always loved that movie. I think anytime it's on TV, I will I will put it on the background. I, I think I know every single line to that movie. And then My Guilty Pleasure, also a shark movie, also <laughs> themed. Sharknado? Theme going. Uh, <laughs> better than that. Better than that. That's a little too low. No, one of my favorite movies that it is always on probably on TNT or USA is Deep Blue Sea. Mm. I love that movie. It's (laughs) not good, but I love it. Second question. What is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? It could be something you have at home when you're in LA and you're going to be in LA next week. Or is there a particular restaurant that you love to go to every time you're back in LA, you have to go to this one spot? 
Oh, yes. My favorite cuisine is sushi. Mm. And every time I'm back in LA, I go to you, me, sushi. It's Y-U space M-I. Sushi in, I guess it's Beverly Hills. It's on um, Santa Monica Boulevard. I think they just moved locations, but it is the best sushi quality. I mean, for like what you're getting. Mm -hmm. They just do very interesting things with their rolls and sushi by far. I mean... Love DC. We do not have a good sushi scene here. I think the closest I can get is New York, and that's not that close. So LA sushi, the best. Third question, what's your favorite place in Los Angeles? It could be a kind of part of town or a street or a place you like to go maybe when you're back in town. Um, I mean, there's so many. I, per- particularly, I will say where the Harvard Westlake Middle School is. We live close around there. I never appreciated it. LA weather is the best by far (laughs) of any, I think, city. And I just love walking the little streets like around there, whether it's down Roxbury or Bedford or going down Camden and then like going into those like smaller streets. Mm -hmm. There's just like these big trees that like when they're in full bloom, it's really beautiful. And it's like, it's really peaceful and calming. And I also, whenever I'm home, whether I'm driving or walking around there or like going for a run, I just like love, I love architecture. Like I love looking at homes and yeah. just like looking at what, how, how people design sort of their, where they live. And so I just love those tiny streets that kind of, they seem homey. I love that. Last question. I am the parent of two little girls. I have a almost three and a half year old and a nine month old little girl. And I'm always curious about parenting advice. And I know having, because I know your parents, yeah. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love to, to know this. I always ask about parenting advice and I'd wondered if you can think about things that your parents did or lessons that they imparted to you that could be instructive to me in terms of kind of your upbringing, the values of your home as you grew up? Well, I bet you're a very good parent. So <laughs> you probably don't need a lot of lessons or tips from me. I don't know if it was a lesson that I learned or just something that I've sort of, I don't know that it was like directly said in our house, but I always like feel like laughing and like not being always so serious mm-hmm. was not that my parents weren't serious. You've met them. They're, they're serious. But having like a happy household, part of that is like laughing and like sharing these memories, whether it's like movies or jokes together yeah. or, you know, just like kind of like my husband and I laugh a lot. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think my husband is like probably one of the funniest people, but like I would never tell him that because like we don't want his ego to get too big now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think part of that is because like, my mom and dad laugh a lot. Yeah. And, you know, with their friends, they laugh a lot. And so I just think that is something that, you know, whenever we have our own family, that's something that will be part of them. That's great advice. Make sure that my daughters grow up in a house full of laughter. Yes, that's that. That's it. And I will say, just not to get like super sentimental here, but one of the reasons, even though it's like one of my, the worst movies ever, but Deep Blue Sea, one of the reasons why I think it's still my favorite movie is my dad and I, when I was like in fifth or sixth grade when it came out, biked from our house to Westwood to see it. And wow. it's still like a memory that I have because it was, you know, it was like, I think rated R. And I think it was like maybe my first rated R movie. And I was like, oh, this is like... 
this is like scandalous, but like my dad and I biked there and I remember we biked on sunset and we were not equipped to do that. I hope you had a helmet. Um, (laughs) Yep. Had a helmet. But um, I think that's why like a movie like that stands out. It's just like, it's like a really fond memory that I have. Um, And I look back and like, I don't think I'll ever forget that. You know, there's like many moments that you will forget over time of family that you share, but like I'll always remember that. And therefore, like, whenever I see that movie on, I always associate something good with it. Well said. Sabrina, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thank you. This has been really, really nice to chat. Absolutely. And thank you for joining the supporting cast. 